During the 2008 presidential primary season, it was common to hear candidates attempting to outdo each other with plans to provide health care coverage to the estimated uh, 40 plus million Americans without health insurance. Unfortunately, with health insurance comes huge costs, and this explains why the number of underinsured U.S. adults uh, has dramatically increased. Uh, indeed, a Commonwealth Fund study finds that as, to, as of 2007, there were an estimated 25 million underinsured adults in the United States. This is up 60% from 2003. When we combine this figure with the number of uninsured, we begin to get a sense of the true scope of uh, what could only be called a healthcare crisis here in the United States. Well, joining us on the line is the author of a study taking a look at how many are underinsured trends among U.S. adults in 2003 and 2007. It's a Commonwealth Fund study, and uh, one of the co-authors is Kathy Shane. Uh, Kathy is a senior vice president of the Commonwealth Fund in New York City, and she joins us on the line. And uh, Kathy, are you with us this morning? Hi, I'm glad to join you. Thank you so much for, uh, for being here. Uh, why don't we begin by making sure that listeners understand the difference between uninsured uh, and underinsured? I'd be glad to. Our study interviewed adults and asked them a series of questions about their experience. And adults who were underinsured, we defined as people who have had insurance all year long. They never had a time un that they were uninsured. Yet they ended up with medical care bills that weren't covered by insurance that equaled 10% or more of their total annual family income. That's the general population. If they were low income, we set a threshold of 5%. Or their deductible, their per-person deductible, all by itself equaled at least 5% of their income. So these are adults, again, that are insured all year long. Um, they're often paying very high premiums for their coverage, but their coverage is leaving them poorly protected for care. When we talk about... Uh the, the state of the economy, we often hear economists refer to unemployment. And what that often does is that masks a bigger problem, which is underemployment. That is, people, they have jobs, but they just don't make a living wage. Uh, is, is this similar to what we're talking about when we compare uh, uninsured versus underinsured? They have insurance, but it's not enough to, to really provide them uh, a way out of that choice between, say, health care and another meal on the plate. Absolutely. We, what we're seeing um, when we look at the underinsured adults and we look at them compared to uninsured adults, who adults who had a time when they had no coverage at all, uh, they confront very similar challenges when they seek care. Many go without care because they can't afford it. They don't go to the doctor when sick. Half told us they didn't go to the doctor when sick, didn't fill a prescription that was recommended, didn't follow up on a doctor's recommendation, um, which looks very much like the uninsured where two-thirds are saying they went without care. Both of them are very similar in struggling with medical debt. We have insured population that has the potential of being bankrupt when they get sick. Almost half of the underinsured adults and more than half of the uninsured adults, in fact, are facing collection agencies, struggling with medical debt, taking out loans, uh, putting mortgages on their house, or going into credit 
our debt. So we have a real financial squeeze on families, it's economic security, as well as putting people's health at risk. So it almost sounds like having insurance can sometimes be uh, just as problematic as not having insurance. The content of insurance matters. Um, if your insurance does not adequately protect you against high costs um, relative to your income, and that could happen when we, we got descriptions from people, they had some, there were some insurance plans that they described that had limits, either on the visits, number of visits to the doctor, or the plan just ran out. Um, that's the end of your drug benefit. You've gone over the cap, as well as cost sharing. It can lead to very difficult choices, especially um, for middle and lower income families that are facing rising energy bills, gasoline costs housing costs, and wages that are not keeping up with the cost of their health insurance premiums. Mm. If you're just tuning in, we're speaking with Kathy Shane. She's one of the co-authors of a new study from the Commonwealth Fund. It's titled, uh, How Many Are Underinsured? Trends Among U.S. Adults. So let's go back a bit, and uh, if you could tell our listeners, what was the impetus for a study on underinsured rather than uninsured? What uh, led you to uh, maybe shift the focus or shift the paradigm from uninsured to underinsured? Um, well, we are, we are looking at both uninsured and underinsured. We did an initial study in 2003 that identified this problem. At that point, there were about 16 million underinsured adults that had been insured all year but were facing high costs, medical care costs relative to their, for medical bills. So that, again, as I said, it's beyond their premium. And we could see that this was happening increasingly as we looked at what was happening to people's insurance coverage. Um, deductibles are up, cost sharing is up, and the basic cost of medical care is up far at a far higher pace than people's incomes. So even if you have always been paying 10% of the bill or 20% of the bill, that share is now high relative to income. We knew it from stories that people were telling us, and we want to tr have wanted to track this for a while to bring attention to the fact that when we talk about affordable insurance, it's important not to talk just about the premium people are paying, but what they're buying when they get their coverage. Okay, so take us through the methodology. What, uh, what exactly did you do to, uh, to gather your information? We interviewed adults across the country. This was a national survey. We both asked them about what coverage they currently had and whether they'd had any time during the year they'd been uninsured. And then we asked them about their total out-of-pocket spending for the year for medical care costs that were not covered by insurance. We asked them a series of questions about their income, and it allowed us to create an indicator that said that their out-of-pocket costs were high relative to their income. Um, you know, I might add that this was a national survey of adults, um, but when we are speaking with people who have insurance, um, in fact, many of them have reacted to the article we published in Health Affairs by sending me emails saying, I'm one of those. Um, I have a policy that ran out on me. I have a policy that placed limits. Some knew that they had bought a policy that had holes in it, 
but the premium was very high and it was the most they could afford. Others encountered limits they didn't even know about until they got sick. So we are potentially underestimating this phenomenon because you may well have a population that has policies with gaps in it and limits in it, but the family or the patient has been fortunate. They haven't been sick during the year. Right. So it, it's almost, if what you're saying, uh, if what I'm interpreting is correct, you're saying that, you know, everything's fine. I mean, people might not know that, they've, that they are underinsured until they get sick. Is that... Yes. I mean, we, we expect our health insurance, I mean, we, it's the definition of insurance, to protect us. Um, and they, people may not know or they may know they've gambled. Um, they've taken on a policy. This often happens in the small group, the small firm market. Employers are trying to hold on to coverage for them and their workers, but it's at the price of very high deductibles limits on drug coverage or sometimes going buying a plan that doesn't even have pharmacy coverage, which if you don't get sick, you can hope that you're okay, but later on you get caught. So it, it is a uh, gambling with insurance. It's a little bit like the subprime market right. in the housing market. Um, you can kind of hope that you don't get hit. Others um, didn't actually understand when they bought policies, particularly in the individual insurance market, that there were exclusions, that it wasn't going to cover them for certain kinds of services or that um, the policy carrier was going to say, you um, had a pre-existing condition, we're not going to cover you for that health problem or it actually doesn't cover those medications or there's a cap on the total amount the plan will pay. So some of it isn't a surprise when you get sick. So let's take a look at some of the, the specific uh, findings. What percentage of your, uh, and what was the final sample size? It was a little less than 3,000. Is that correct? It was like yes, 2,600? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Um, we, what we found, and we've extrapolated this to the population, the study finds an increase of 60% to 25 million adults who are insured all year, and these are under age 65, so working age adults. Um, they are a workforce who are insured all year long, 25 million who are underinsured compared to 16 million four years ago. If we add that to the uninsured, the number of adults who didn't have any insurance at all when we spoke to them or had a time without coverage. There's another 50 million adults that were either uninsured all year or part of the year. Some of this is they lost a job, regained a job, they graduated from college and had a time uninsured. We get to 42% of oral adults, two out of five, are either uninsured or underinsured or were uninsured or underinsured in 2007. This was a 2007 study, a very high percentage. And now how does that break down uh, along race uh, and uh, ethnicity? Um, I actually think it's more important to look at how it breaks down on around income. Okay. Because um, anyone who is low income and then what we're seeing is middle income, it's um, over this four years, the rates underinsured have risen dramatically among middle and upper income adults. So adults who have incomes that are above 200% of poverty, which for a family is about $40,000 a year, that's where most of the increase has been. Um, rates underinsured tripled for that group. The low-income 
workforce, um, people who are at or below poverty or in the sort of $20,000 a year range, are absolutely the highest risk, but they have been for a long time. Very high rates uninsured, very high rates with um, inadequate coverage. What we're seeing that's very disturbing is it's moving right into families who are solidly in the middle class. I ask the question, though, about race. And that affects, that affects, when you ask race and ethnicity, anyone who's lower income. So rates are higher for Hispanics, right. rates are higher for, for blacks, but their rates are basically up for middle income and low income adults. And, and that, to stress. exactly. So it's, it's, not, it's not ethnicity related as much as it's economic related. If you're working for a small firm, you're at high risk. If you're buying coverage on your own, you're at high risk. And that was the point that, that I was going to make, which is that if you actually look at it, uh, I think you, the the article talks about um, the the race and ethnicity gap is narrowing um, yes, and be, because of this. it's narrowing because the white rates are getting worse. That's that's was one of our finding. The number, uh, the percentage of white non-Hispanic population who are either uninsured or underinsured is up. So the gap has closed, but it's not closing um, in the direction we would like it to. Yeah, and th- and that's really what I was getting at there. Um, so what? Um, what seems to be uh, at the root, uh, and I don't know if I don't know that your your study tackles this, but if you could comment, what seems to be at the root of the rising healthcare costs? Uh, it, we don't we don't discuss it at length in um, this article. We're, we're focused on coverage, but we are all facing whether we are getting our insurance through an employer buying it on our own, if we're getting it through the public sector. Households, business, and public sector are confronting rising health care costs and rising premium costs. Um, part of that is that we deliver care quite inefficiently in this country. Resources are not integrated. We often get duplicated tests, repeated tests. We also are our fragmented insurance system where people move in and out of coverage and coverage is fractured of very small groups drives up the overhead of our insurance for the nation. We are by far the most expensive country to operate an insurance system. Administrative costs are far higher in the U.S. as a share of our premiums than they are anywhere in Europe or the rest of the world. So it's a combination of underlying factors that all countries face with new technologies that we would all like to have, but we don't have any leverage points. We don't have ways of paying that slow the growth of costs. As a result, premiums are up much faster than wages, and we're clearly headed in the wrong direction unless we have a policy shift. Uh, we're speaking with Kathy Shane from uh, the Commonwealth Fund, and I want to give you a chance uh, in a minute or two to tell us a bit about the Commonwealth Fund. Uh, the study is how many are underinsured trends among U.S. adults, taking a look at uh, the underinsured with regard to health coverage uh, in 2003 and in 2007. It seems that uh, one of the things that distinguishes the United States from our other uh, democratic industrial counterparts uh, is the uh, insurance industry, uh, that we don't have a single-payer health system. Uh, Can you comment on that and uh, either agree or disagree? Uh, We don't have a universal 
health insurance system as other countries do in Europe, other advanced industrialized countries. Many of them are not actually single-payer. They are multi-payer. Some of them are mixed public and private, but everyone is insured. The Netherlands, for example, works with multiple different plans, as does Switzerland. Germany works with different sickness funds, but they all insure everyone. They run a much more efficient insurance system and more coherent. Um, even where there are different pairs, they are focused on population health. They're focused on underlying cost trends, and they're often following s similar payment methodologies. You don't lose people in those systems. Um, over time, everyone has um, an incentive to improve population health and really focus on population welfare, the health of the population as well as economic security. Is it fair then to say that one of the distinctions between our system and and uh, others is the profit motive is uh, reduced in uh, the healthcare industry? It's it's a very different focus overall. It's not just a profit. I mean, no, in no system can a hospital go bankrupt. They have to stay afloat. But, but there is no country like the United States that has such fractured markets with multiple different kinds of incentives where you can make money, for example, by avoiding health care risk, not taking on all the population. That doesn't exist in any other country. Right. You can't deny someone for a pre-existing condition in, in other countries. You can't. And what that also does for insurance companies, it means they don't have a whole office full of people trying to figure out what your health risks are and underwriting you for risk. They just don't exist. It just lowers the administrative costs. It lo lowers, you know, technical term transaction costs. That layer in the insurance world just doesn't exist. What then uh, are the policy implications that uh, your study seems to suggest? And uh, without you know being for any particular candidate, are there candidates running for the White House that uh, that seem to have a, a solution that is uh, fitting with the implications of your study? Well, I think if you look at the broad policy implications as we move to a presidential debate and a, hopefully a national debate on this where it's not just the presidents but whoever is elected, we are taking up this issue again as a nation, Congress and the president. Um, it is important in these debates when you hear the word affordability and coverage expansion, you ask what coverage and what is buying, what this what the proposals would buy for people. The content of insurance, not just the premium, is important. The state of Massachusetts, for example, in its reforms, addressed expanding coverage to everyone, but they also said what we're buying with coverage is important and they addressed the content. So that's going to be have to be an important part of the debate. Some proposals will, um, are looking at that I think we also would have to start looking at not just expanding coverage, but once people are securely insured, what other kinds of system reforms um, we should be looking for. Both candidates, both parties, in fact, um, multiple voices in Congress are starting to talk about the fact that we have 
horrendous information systems in the United States. We're far behind on electronic medical records. Our physicians just don't have tools other doctors are starting to have, and that is both a population health issue as well as efficiency, knowing when you're about to put a patient on two drugs that might interact, cause a medical area that ends up in a hospital, a hospitalization that needs to never occur, hurts the patient and drives up costs. So we need system tools, and both parties are starting to talk more that the more coherent and cohesive the policies are, um, the more likely we're going to see more transformative change that's looking at access, protection, and the growth of costs over time. How far off do you think uh, the reality of universal coverage in the United States is? Uh, I've been working on this um, for quite some time, so I'm always hopeful that we're turning the corner. I think it is time for a real national debate now that we have insured as well as uninsured families who have a stake in reform. I hope there will be a broader population, broad-based population voice that we need a new direction. And that's going to be critical in national debates because any change we meet make will be difficult. It's a $2 trillion industry, so that means a lot of people are making money off of it. And change, therefore, is threatening to those who think that it might mean potentially less revenue, even if it's in the future. So we really need a broad, popular population voice that says this is not working, and we need businesses to join in with their workforces and say we need a new direction so that Congress will have the political will and we will all have the political will to move forward. And has your study uh, gotten any response from uh, Capitol Hill? Uh, there's broad interest in it. This just came. It was released in Health Affairs on Tuesday. The response has been quite overwhelming, actually, by the media. I, I think my sense is that people's stories have been coming in both to radio stations and TV stations, and our survey is giving a voice to millions of people who have had these experiences and put a number on it. So we have, we've had multiple requests to appear and be on the radio, and it's starting to appear in congressional testimony. So there is an awareness that the number is up. Well, we certainly thank you for uh, appearing here. Uh, finally, why don't you uh, spend a minute or two telling our listeners about the Commonwealth Fund? I'd be glad to. The Commonwealth Fund is a nonprofit private foundation located and based in New York City. We have existed since 1918 when the founders gave all of their wealth to a foundation that was dedicated to improving um, the common good, doing the common good, with always with a focus on health. Um, we've run an international policy program that looks at lessons we can learn internationally as well as at home. We have a high-performance health care commission that's focused on how can we do better as a country on access quality and costs, addressing particularly the needs of the vulnerable populations in our country, but also all of our need for a health care system that we have now and in the future. So all of our work um, focuses on health policy, health resource, and how can we can raise and improve the performance of the U.S. healthcare system. 
And if listeners want to access the, uh, the study uh, or find out more about the Commonwealth Fund, where could they turn? You can go on our website. All of our reports are available for free and downloadable. We release the national scorecard and state scorecard where you can also see how your state compares to other states. And it's, this is www.thecommonwealthfund.org. CMWF.org will also get you to our website. So both routes will get you in. And as I said, everything we put up is free and downloadable. Well, I want to thank you so much for, uh, for joining us right uh, just a couple days after the study came out. It's uh, available at the Commonwealth Fund website. It's titled, How Many Are Uninsured? Trends Among U.S. Adults, 2003 and 2007. And uh, Kathy Shane, I want to thank you so much for highlighting this, uh, this important uh, dimension to the health care situation in America. Thank you. I was glad to join you. And uh, thank you very much. Take care. Bye. And we will be back after this musical break. Stick around.